back when I was in in high school, I believe this was this was 1990. I was a freshman in high school. And my favorite athlete of all time, Michael Jordan, played maybe his maybe his greatest game. Listen to this stat line. He played. He was playing a really good Cleveland Cavaliers team. And here was his stat line. MJ scored 69 points that night. He did that on 85% shooting. He made 91% of his free throws. To go with 69 points, he added 18 rebounds, 6 assists, and 4 steals. As praise was being heaped on him from the press and uh, even his opponents. Anybody remember Hot Rod Williams? You have to be a kind of an old basketball junkie to remember Hot Rod, but Hot Rod called him the greatest athlete we will ever see as an opponent that night. But the, the quote of the night came from Jordan's teammate. And the press asked him, uh, Stacy King, about the game. Stacy King said this This night will always be remembered as the night that Michael Jordan and I combined to score 70 points. Uh, I love that one. If, if he wasn't kidding, like Stacy King, who missed all of his shots, 0 for 4, I looked it up. Uh, he managed to make one free throw and play pretty poorly altogether, but he, he bragged, this is the night me and MJ combined for 70 points. If he wasn't kidding, would that be the most ridiculous bit of boasting in history. I mean, it would, except for two things. One, he was kidding, and two, there's an even more ridiculous kind of boasting that is serious and that is more common. Paul's going to talk about it in Romans chapter 3 today. It happens anytime a Christian Anytime someone who calls himself or herself a Christian says something that communicates pride or self-credit in their position before God or superiority over another person because of my position before God, that is actually more ridiculous than saying Michael Jordan and I teamed up to score 70 points. The Bible is clear that there's only one requirement for eternal life. You know what the requirement for eternal life is according to the Bible? Righteousness. Do you know who gets to go to heaven after they die? The righteous. It's really clear in the Bible. We can look in Psalm 112. We can look in Daniel 12. Um, Jesus quoted the Daniel one and said it himself. It is only the righteous who enter the kingdom of heaven. And that sounds fair. Sounds just, doesn't it? Good people, righteous people go to heaven. Bad people, unrighteous people go to hell. That seems fair. You know why it seems fair? Because it's fair. God's impartial. I'm going to let the righteous in and the unrighteous I'm going to exclude. The problem though is what Paul explained to us through the first section of the book of Romans that he sums up at the end of that section this way. There is no one righteous. 
Not even one. There's nobody who understands that their greatest need is for this God. There's nobody who naturally seeks after this God who is their greatest need. All have turned away. We've all become worthless or futile. We've tried to make life about ourselves. There's no one who's kind enough, not even one. So there's the bad news. The requirement for eternal life is one requirement. You must be righteous. The bad news is you're not. That's what Paul told us for most of three chapters, which is what makes the next paragraph after this one that's on the screen here. The paragraph we studied last week, maybe the greatest paragraph in all of Scripture. Because given that only the righteous make it to eternal life, but there's no one righteous, I mean, that seems like a problem, and it is, That's what makes this paragraph so great. Now, apart from trying to be good, apart from the law, apart from good behavior, Paul said, the righteousness that God requires, that he talked about in the whole Old Testament, this righteousness of God is made available through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Even though everybody has sinned and falls short of the glory of God, God is now justifying people as a gift of his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. The bad news is only the righteous get to heaven and you ain't one of them. None of us are. The good news is God will deem, will judge sinners like me and you as if we were righteous. He will look at us and say, That one is good enough, is righteous, is spotless, is clean. That's just a free gift God promises to give to all those who believe. Say one more time. To all those who believe, have faith, our punishment for our sins will have been carried out at the cross. That's the gospel. That's why Paul wrote this book. It's the main idea. What Paul is going to do next, because he has explained that, he's explained the gospel, how we get righteousness given to us as a free gift by believing in Jesus Christ. God's demonstrated his righteousness at the cross. He's explained all that. If you weren't here last week, get last week's sermon where I talk more about that. Now Paul, from this point, 327, through a ways into chapter 4, Paul's going to kind of expand on this and give some illustrations of this. And that's where we're going, going today. And here's what Paul is going to say today. Here's his main point. Paul's going to launch into some rapid-fire questions and answers. He's going to ask a question and answer it right away. And his main point today is going to be this. Because the required righteousness to get into eternal life is just a free gift that nobody deserves... That takes away our ability to boast in our position before God. The gospel leaves no room for boasting. Then he's going to say, and this gospel of of, uh, righteousness as a gift to those who believe makes more sense given what we know about God. And basically, those two things are going to be the main ideas 
today. So let's read our passage together today. Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. It's on page, uh, it's in your bulletin. It's on page 1128 in a Bible that's underneath a chair in front of you, 1,128. If you want to keep that open as we go through this, that would be great. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 27. This is the New American Standard Bible. Verse 27, where then is boasting, Paul says? It is excluded. By what law? A law of works? No. Boasting is excluded by the law of faith. For we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Isn't God the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, God is the God of Gentiles also. Since indeed, God who will justify the circumcised by faith will also justify the uncircumcised through faith. That God is one. In verse 31, so then through this faith thing, do we nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. There is our passage for today. We, we start in verses 27 and 28 where Paul asks his first question. His first question is this, where then is boasting? If we had just sat down and, and opened Romans to this spot, if this was our first sermon, I just asked, where then is boasting? This, this message or this question would be nonsensical. It would make no sense because you have to understand what came before it that brings this up. Here's what Paul is, is really asking. Based on what I just said in verses 21 through 26, based on my contention that the righteousness that's required to get someone into eternal life only comes to people by a free gift, nothing they do. It doesn't come from their behavior. It doesn't come from their morality. It doesn't come from anything except God just giving someone the gift of being declared righteous. That's justification and God promises to give that to those who believe that's what he did at the cross. Based on that gospel, what does that do to our ability to boast? That's the question. Paul answers it very quickly, and he answers it definitively. He says, it is excluded. Boasting is excluded by the gospel I just explained in the previous paragraph. That's what Paul Paul says, when Paul talks about boasting, he's just talking about taking self-credit in something or taking pride in something that I've done. So very clearly, Paul is just his rhetorical way of saying the gospel leaves no room for boasting. Now, what is it in the gospel that takes away our ability to boast? That's what he asks next. By what law is boasting removed? Is it the law of works that takes away boasting? No, the law of faith takes away boasting. Here's what Paul means there. What is it about the gospel that leaves us unable to take self-credit for our position before God? Is it something to do with the good works we do as Christians that takes away our ability to boast? No. I just want to point out, I'm going to say more about this later, but make sure you, you catch what Paul does not say. Paul does not say that good works are excluded from the gospel. 
In fact, he'll say, may it never be. He just says, there's something in the gospel that makes it to where you and I can't brag about our position before God. We can't brag about how special we are to God. Look, he saved me. He must love me a whole lot. We can't, there's just no room for us to boast. And the thing that excludes boasting has nothing to do with our good works. Because if we're not careful as Christians, it's very tempting to think we are more in God's eyes because of because there's some sins I don't sin anymore. There's some good things I do that other people don't do. That's a, that's, a, that's a boast. If we're not careful, we can boast. But there's something in the gospel that cuts our ability to boast off right at the knees. And it's this. Paul says, the law of faith is what excludes boasting for the Christian. Anything I do in my own effort, in my self-discipline, um, religious practices, rituals, if any of those things play a role in God being okay with me, I would have something to boast about. If there's anything I have to do for God to justify me, I could at least boast in that no matter how big or small it is, I could still say, God scored 69 points and I only scored one, but did you see the way that free throw went through the net? I mean, that thing was pure. When it comes to your salvation, God scored all the points. That's why we can't brag. It's like, when it comes to our salvation, we didn't even get in the game. Warren, the late Warren Wiersbe gave this illustration at this point. He said, the swimmer who is drowning, when he is saved from drowning, does not then brag because he trusted the lifeguard. What else could he do? That's us in our justification before God. As redeemed people, really, if we're following Paul through the whole book of Romans, before we ever accept the gospel, do you know what we have to accept first? That we are the kind of person Paul talked about in the first section of the book of Romans. Romans 1 through Romans 3, through 3.20. We have to agree with Paul. I'm not righteous. I'm drowning. I need rescued. If we don't understand that first, we'll never accept the gospel that saves us. You know, it's, it's very, very easy to be syncretistic in this point. Syncretism, that's a big word. Syncretism is just when you mix different things from different faiths. To try to believe a little bit of this and a little bit of that and think somehow I'll come to the truth. There's a, there's a dangerous, giant air quotes, Christian kind of syncretism that Paul is deflating here. It goes something like this. Yes, of course, Jesus had to die on a cross for me to be saved. Like, that was most of the work. Of course, God's wrath had to be poured out on his son. And I had to believe in that. Yes, of course. But 
there are some things we have to do. I have to take these classes. I have to go through this ritual. There's some sins I had better quit. And if I don't do those, I don't stop those bad things. And if I don't do these good things, I am not okay with God. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. But I can promise you there are people in here right now who aren't sure if what I'm saying is true. Surely I have to quit this. and Surely I've got to take communion. I've got to be baptized. I've got to go to confession. I've got to be confirmed. Surely there's something I had to do. Not according to Paul. Again, God scored all of the points in the game that won your salvation. This was a a point of last week's sermon that I shared at the very end of the service, but your salvation is not about you proving how good you are, that you are good enough to be saved. Your salvation is about God proving he was good enough to save you. He proved that at the cross. He did all of the work. All we do is believe. That's what takes away our ability to boast. If there's anything I have to do, I could at least boast that I did that. Now, does that mean we don't repent? Does that mean we don't do religious rituals? Come back next week. We'll talk about that. Paul does us a favor here. He says the law of faith is what excludes boasting. What's the law of faith? I'm glad you asked because Paul's about to tell us. In verse 28, he tells us the law of faith. The law of faith excludes boasting. What is it? Verse 28, we consider that a person is declared righteous by faith apart from the works of the law. There's the law of faith. When Martin Luther um, translated this passage in Romans, he added a word that was not in the Greek text. And he put it right here after the word faith. Martin Luther's translation says, we consider that a person is declared righteous by faith. Guess which word he put there? Faith alone. You ever hear of the solas of the Reformation? Sola scriptura, sola fide, right? This is where it comes from. Martin Luther added the word alone right here. And it's not in the Greek text, text, but it is Paul's idea. Paul says, I'm not just speaking for myself. I'm I'm saying something for, I'm speaking for all of Christianity here. We consider as a foundational truth that people are declared righteous by faith alone, apart from any good works or behaviors or rituals or anything. In Doug Moo's commentary on Romans, which is kind of a standard commentary in the book of Romans, he says at this verse this, no good work, whatever their nature, whatever their motivation, no good works can play a part in making a sinner right with God. 
So to sum up Paul's initial argument, why does the, go- the gospel leaves us unable to boast in anything, to take any self-credit? Why? Because apart from faith alone, I'm still in Romans 1 through 3, 118 through 320. I'm without excuse before God. I cannot be good enough. I cannot boast in my position before God if I am saved because the only thing that got me here is believing that God did enough to get me here. It is all of God and none of me. I can no more boast in my position before God than a guy who is drowning in the bottom of the pool can boast for being drugged off the bottom and put up on the side. That's point one. Next, Paul is going to seem to like change gears wildly, but he really doesn't. He starts talking about whether God is the God of Jews only or, or if he's the God of Gentiles too. And no, God's the God of the whole world. He's got the whole world. Remember that one? Um, this is part of the same argument. Here's what Paul is going to say. What I've just explained Salvation is by faith alone. So nobody can boast about their behavior, that I'm I'm saved because of these things I have done. That makes sense based on what we know about God. Here's how that argument comes together. Paul says, is God the God of the Jews only, or is God the God of Gentiles also? Every Jew in the audience would have answered this the same way. There is one God, creator of heaven and earth. The one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The God is, God is one. We have one God. Exists co-equally in three persons. But Every Jew in his audience would have said, no, there's only one God. That He created everything, and he is the God of everywhere at all times. Once Paul has got the Jews in his audience to agree with him that far, he says this, well, since God is, is one, there's only one God, He's going to save everybody the same way. He's going to justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Here's why that makes Paul's point. It's a little harder to see his point here, but that's what I mean. That's why you pay me. Here's what Paul says. Um, One of the major tenets of Judaism is that the creator of the universe appeared to a guy named Jacob, renamed him Israel. That's how God got the name, the God of Israel. It's not he was the only the God of Israel. He's the God of everyone. Nobody, people had walked and forgot, forgotten about him and doubted that he was even real. And so God showed up to one family, Israel. And if people could be saved by behavior, surely the list of behaviors God wrote down to Israel would be the way people would be saved by behavior. Don't you think? Doesn't that make sense? There's always been this creator God out there. People walked. People ignored him. So he showed back, he showed back up to one family and he wrote down, here's what human righteousness would look like. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the law. That was God saying... If you want to be good enough for, to be acceptable by me, here's what it would look like. And if people can be saved by behavior, that would be the list of behaviors. Does that make sense? 
Paul says, that's not how people get saved. And it makes sense. The law is not just, though, the list of human moral behaviors that would make us righteous. The law also is very Jewish. It kept Israel as a distinct people because God promised to save the world through Israel, not through the law, but through a Savior that would come out of Israel. His name was Jesus. And so in the law, God built a bunch of stuff that's very unique to the Israelites, today to the Jews. Things like weird food laws. You can't use different kinds of fabric in the same garment. So if you're wearing something that is a blend, that's a no-no according to the law. Um, You can't do anything on Saturdays because of the Sabbath laws. Um, They had to circumcise their young baby boys in a primitive medical environment. Lots of weird things that people in the rest of the world would look at and go, "Mm, no thanks. So Paul's argument is like this. If God saved people through the law, everyone would would have to become Jewish in order to know God. But if God's the God of the whole world, does that make much sense? Paul says, no, this was always God's plan to save everyone the same way because he's impartial. And that way would be by faith, not through becoming Jewish and doing animal sacrifices and all that stuff. That's why why we don't have to become Jewish to be saved. Praise God. You know why? Because I love pork chops. That's why. I like fish with scales. I like shellfish, and probably all my uh, garments are not 100% made out of one kind of fiber. But the beautiful, one beautiful thing about the gospel is the gospel fits in any culture. The law was Jewish. Uh, Travis was up here last week, and he showed us a video of some Christians in Africa uh, singing. Travis, when they do church in Africa, does it look the same as the way we do church here? No. Who's right? Them or us? And you could take a video of those Africans doing church and us doing church and compare it to uh, someone in an underground church in North Korea, and it would look very different there than it does here or in Africa. Who's right? Nobody's right. Because the gospel fits and works in any and every culture. Because the God of the whole world used Israel to deliver the Savior of the whole world. That's Paul's point. Now, every time Paul brings up the gospel, and the gospel is this, you are saved just when you believe on Jesus Christ the gavel of the judge of the universe drops and declares you not guilty forever and ever and ever. And, and your justification is sure, and it's, that's over. The judge, it's over. Case dismissed. What is the argument that's always going to come up after someone hears the gospel of justification by God's grace, a free gift that comes to those who believe? What's the argument that's always going to come up? Well, 
You're, you're just getting rid of the law. You're just getting rid of the behavioral commands in the Bible. People are going to go crazy. People are going to lose their mind. How are we going to control people's behavior if you just tell people that they are saved by this free gift that comes to anybody who believes? That is the argument that always comes up, and that's why Paul says next what he says next. Verse 31, in all our translations, says something like this. So are we then nullifying, throwing away, trashing the law because of this faith thing? Is that what you're doing, Paul? Paul always answers that the same way. May it never be. Or your Bible might say, absolutely not. Instead, rather, on the contrary, we establish the law. So Paul says, I'm not throwing out the law because salvation is by faith alone. Salvation, justification doesn't come through the law. That doesn't mean I'm throwing it out. I'm absolutely not throwing it out. In fact, Paul says, we actually establish the law because of the salvation through faith thing. And that raises a question for you and me that I put on the screen here. How in the world does that work? How does righteousness coming by faith establish, uphold the law? This is true for multiple reasons. I'm just going to give you two this morning. How does the fact, when I, once I believe on Jesus Christ, that gavel in heaven drops, my case is dismissed, I am righteous in God's courtroom forever and ever and ever, even though the rest of my sins have not even been committed yet. How can Paul then say that does not throw away the law? It actually establishes the law, upholds the law. Here's how. He's already told us one. If we would back up to verse 20 of this chapter, Paul wrote this. No one is declared righteous before him or before God by the works of the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The job of the law was not to save anyone eternally. That was never going to work. Paul Paul would say, even people who believed that the Old Testament law was saving them, actually, that was God just was going to hold on to their, their sin and put it on Jesus Christ, and their faith in God actually would count as righteousness. No one's declared righteous by God because they were good enough. Not one single person ever. That wasn't the purpose of the law. You know what the law was for? Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This was, when we studied this passage, I shared a quote from somebody that said, the law is the straight edge that shows us how crooked we are. God wrote down, here's what human righteousness would look like. Can you do it? No. So the law just shows us I need rescued. The law shows me what human righteousness would look like, and if I am honest, I will know that I cannot be righteous so I need rescued. In church, we call that being saved. I need a savior, a rescuer, a redeemer. That's the purpose of the law, to show us if we're not saved by God, if we're not given some alien kind of righteousness that we don't deserve, 
then we're going to be lost forever and ever. That's the purpose of the law. So in that sense, the law is established through the gospel by its purpose is fulfilled. It's done its job. It points us to the Savior. But there's a second way that the gospel establishes the law. And I want to spend a couple of minutes explaining that to you. The moral commands in the scriptures, and do you know there are more of those in the New Testament than there were in the Old Testament? That's true. We are told how to live by God. We are commanded to do certain things like this and to stop certain things like that. They're commands. None of us will be in heaven because we do those things well enough. That's not what gets anyone into heaven. But those commands are still God's best for your life and for my life. If we want to call those things the law, I'm okay with that. Now the question becomes, what happens when I break the law? Does that mean I go to hell forever and ever because I didn't do it good enough? No! No! There won't be one, except for Jesus Christ himself, there won't be one single person in heaven who is there because of how good they were. Everyone there will understand I am here because of a free gift. But once I receive that free gift, it does not mean that God no longer cares about your obedience. Paul will say later again, may it never be. God's will for you. God's best for you is written down so that we'll pursue what's best. Will you, no matter how hard you try, those things God says, don't do those things, these good things God says, do those things, will you mess those up? Yeah, but I want to answer this intentionally here. You are not destined to mess a single one of those up. So while it is true, I will and you will sin from now until you are glorified and made like Jesus. But there's not a single one of those I can point to that I can say, well, see, because I'm a sinner, I'm going to do that one on this day. Nope. When, when I fail, it is my fault. I'm not destined for that failure. And God has shown me what is better, and I have chosen willfully to do what he says is not best because I still buy that lie that I know better than him. What the gospel does is it puts me in a right relationship with God, And I start to walk with the one who saved me, who rescued me. He holds me. He loves me. When I mess up, I have a guarantee that he will not throw me back. You know, we tend to believe we have to be worth saving. That's what we tend to believe. If I don't meet God at least part of the way, 
If I don't, it's like God just dangles justification out in front of us and says, now, if you don't, if you don't quit that, and if you don't start doing this stuff, I won't give this to you. It's not the way it works. I realize I'm wicked and broken and unrighteous. I believe in Jesus Christ, and bang, I'm saved forever. He scored all the points. But when I, when I walk with him, and I realize, man, he, he gave me this stuff for my good, for my joy. And so I start walk, walking with him, doing life with him, caring that, that, I, that my life looks more like Jesus to, to him and to other people, and that's where I get my joy. I will start, I will look back and realize I do more law, I do more of the behavioral commands in Scripture now than I did back when I was just trying to be good enough to get to heaven. That's how the gospel establishes the law. And Paul has told us that already too. Back in 117, in the main idea of the book, Paul said this, For the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. I get righteousness. I got my righteousness, my eternal righteousness, the moment I believed on Jesus Christ. And forever, legally before God, I will look like Jesus to my Father. Amen and hallelujah. My my justification, my sanctification, my glorification is wrapped up right here. It started with faith. I'll live by faith and I'll be glorified because God made, God caused me to believe in his son. And as I live by faith, something happens. The righteousness of God will be revealed in my life. It will start to come out of me. When I began to seek my joy in my Savior, and to my shame, I was way older than I should have been. One thing that changed pretty quickly was my language. My language was filthy. And in some ways, I intentionally tried to clean that up, or I would at least catch myself and feel bad when I, when I messed up. But my language changed just from seeking my joy in Christ. Now, that takes us back to Paul's first question. Where then is boasting? Do I have something to boast about? Because I don't talk like some of these filthy heathens I hear around here. I talk much gooder than those folks. That would be boasting in my righteousness. Do I have any room to make that boast? No. You know why? Even that is not my righteousness. I tried my righteousness for 20-some years. And I made a mess out of my life. When I started to find my joy in walking with the one who saved me, his righteousness started seeping out of my life. So that that change in my behavior wasn't even mine. It was his. Because this gospel journey is one that starts in faith and it ends in faith. From faith to faith. And when the righteousness of him comes out, how can I boast in somebody else's righteousness? That is why our only boast can be in Jesus Christ. It's not self-credit. 
He gets all the credit. He scored all the points. I didn't throw a free throw in in a close game. He scores all the points. I just get to celebrate in the locker room. Sorry that all my metaphors are sports metaphors. That's, that's heaven. Our eternal life will be the locker room celebration that Jesus won the game and we get to just be on the team. Would you pray with me and we will close. Father God, there's a sneaky kind of boasting that some of us who have been Christians for a long time, we want to be able to do. We want to, to be able to, see, to say, see, I, I was worth it. That's why God saved me. Here's what I did for you to save me. Far be it from us to boast in what you have done, O oh God. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died in our place. There's no more condemnation now for those of us who are in Christ Jesus because Christ died in our place. Thank you for rescuing us 100%. And God, we want to find our joy in you. We want to be better. I want to be better this year than I was last. I want to be more like Jesus this year than I was last. But you are going to have to change me as I walk with you. And you will get all the credit if any of that change happens. God, thank you that the righteousness we need that we could not gain on our own can be given by a free gift. Thank you that we can boast in Christ Jesus, that we can make him our victory cry. Not in what we did, but in what you did for us. Thank you, God, for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen.